Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, acquitted. I did not do what I was accused of. Did not. The man who once led Canada's COVID-19 vaccine rollout is cleared of a sexual assault charge. will tell you what was said by the trial judge and hear from Danny Faltin himself. Also. We are targeting the most dangerous weapons. It was their target all along to go after law-abiding hunters. The Liberal attempt to ban handguns and assault-style weapons is hitting major opposition. What is the government trying to do? Should hunters in this country be worried? Also, we're throwing everything we can uh, at the healthcare system. The Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario calls in the Canadian Red Cross. Is this what healthcare has come to? This is Primetime Politics. Hello, everyone. I'm Michael Sarabio. We begin with the man who once led this country's COVID-19 vaccine rollout, Major General Danny Faltin. Today, a Quebec judge acquitted Faltin of a sexual assault charge stemming from an incident that allegedly took place more than 30 years ago. Now, a warning, the details may be disturbing for some, but a woman whose identity is protected by a publication ban accused Faltin of using her hand on his genitals to masturbate while she slept. It allegedly took place when they were both students at the Royal Military College in Saint-Jean-Quebec. But the judge said her story had contradictions and Faltin, who said he never had physical contact with the women, was more consistent. Danny Faltin spoke after the verdict. Take a listen. As you would expect, this is a huge burden off our shoulders, my shoulders and, and that of, our, of my family. This is one important step in an ongoing process to prove my innocence and recover my reputation. I did not do what I was accused of. Did not. I'm not guilty and I'm innocent. Now, the judge said he believes the complainant was assaulted, but he was not convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that Faltin was the assailant. It began as legislation to ban handguns, but last week amendments were added, expanding the criteria that would make a weapon illegal. So now, whether by accident or by design, the new criteria, we are told, would include guns that are commonly used by hundreds of thousands of hunters in this country. Among them, Montreal Canadian Kerry Price, who turned to social media this weekend to say he is not a criminal, he is not a threat, and what Justin Trudeau is trying to do is unjust. But asked about that criticism, and here is what we heard from the Prime Minister today. We all know that we need to make sure that guns that are designed to kill the largest number of people as quickly as possible have no place in Canada. And we're going to continue to move forward with that in a strong and smart way. We'll continue to listen to Canadians. We're not going after uh, hunting rifles or shotguns. With more, we're now joined by the Liberal member for the riding of Outremont in Quebec, Rachel Bendayan. She is also the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Tourism. 
Raquel Dancho is the conservative member for the riding of Kildonan, St. Paul in Manitoba. She's also the vice chair of the Common Standing Committee on Public Safety and National Security. And Peter Julian is the NDP member of parliament for the riding of Burnaby, New Westminster in BC and is the NDP party house leader. Hello to the three of you. Good to be here. Hi there. Hi, Michael. Uh, Ms. Bendai, I'm going to get you to start us out here because I want to get your reaction to the criticism that's being expressed by members of the Canadian public, including Carey Price, when it comes to the, the firearms, the gun bill that's being uh, uh, making its way through the Commons right now. Sure, and thanks for the question, Michael. Before I get to that, I, I just want to acknowledge that you know I'll be I'll be heading back to Montreal tomorrow in order to stand with the victims of, of Polytechnique and their families. Um, it is 33 years now, um, this December 6th, that 14 women were gunned down by a semi-automatic assault weapon. And, you know, we know that weapon was designed to kill as many people as possible in the shortest amount of time possible. And those are the weapons that we're really trying to, to go after um, in C21 and, and in the amendments to C21. To your question, of course, there's been a lot of noise about uh, this particular piece of legislation in the last couple of weeks and days, um, including just this weekend. And you mentioned Carrie Price, who I have to admit is, is one of um, my favorite hockey players. And, um, of course, I I was really saddened uh, to see him pick up a lot of the rhetoric and disinformation coming from the gun lobby. And then it was brought to my attention last night, actually, that um, you know this is somebody who who literally has a flag of, of the gun lobby um, in, in their home. And so, you know, I think this is somebody who's associated with the the CCFR, and I I, I understand um, you know his position. But the reality is that the gun that he was holding in the in the picture that he posted on social media isn't going to be banned by our proposal legislation. We're really not going after, um, uh, you know, that gun or, or guns traditionally used and conceived for hunting. We really respect um, that tradition that is so rich in our country. What we're going after are guns that were designed to kill people. Military-style assault weapons in the amendment and handguns in our legislation. And we saw that the registration of handguns rose 71 percent between 2010 and 2020 in this country. And we need to take action. Ms. Dancho, what's your concern with the amendment? Uh, as we heard there from Ms. Bendayan, it's meant to be a legislation that tackles guns and firearms that kill people, not hunting weapons. Well, I think one of my primary concerns is this is coming in light of a 92% increase in gang murders in Canada since uh, Justin Trudeau became the Prime Minister, a 32% increase in violent crime, which equates to 124,000 more violent crime incidents last year than from the first year that he became Prime Minister. So the Liberal government, unfortunately, their approach to, to fighting crime has failed terribly, and they are looking to change the channel by moving forward on this very underhanded and sneaky amendment that they brought forward at the end stage of committee that is the largest ban on hunting rifles in Canadian history. There are many ubiquitous hunting rifles and shotguns on that list that are widely used by our Indigenous hunters, by Canadian hunters in rural and northern Canada, and they certainly are seeing many of their firearms on that list now that the list has been put out there, and they're deeply concerned about it, as they should be. And the arguments putting, uh, being put forward by the Liberal government, unfortunately, and I do believe this is by design, could be applied to any firearm. So what we're seeing is them opening the door to banning many, many more firearms. They've said this before, oh, we'll never come for hunters. Well, now that they have, I think that they've lost all trust from the hunting community, and that's going to take a lot of work for them to rebuild, and I don't know if they'll ever will be able to do so. Yeah. Mr. Ju Julian, what's your take on this? Because, uh, you know, one might think that the NDP is in favor of gun legislation, but your colleague, Charlie Angus, is calling the amendment, at least, an overreach, uh, expressing his concern for hunters. 
Well, we, we've expressed support for the, the freeze on, on handguns. We've expressed support for the ban on military-style assault weapons. Uh, what was important was to move the legislation through, and particularly in light of, of that very sad anniversary tomorrow. Uh, there, I, I think, is a consensus in Canadian society on both of those uh, both of those points. The, the problem is the government then tabled amendments at the eleventh hour uh, that hadn't been vetted. They hadn't been consulting with Indigenous communities, uh, Indigenous communities, and many rural communities. Uh, people depend on having a hunting rifle to put food on the table for their families, and instead of uh, vetting it through appropriately instead of really talking about the amendments. They just uh, tabled them. They're confusing. Even the Prime Minister admitted that to, to that today, that the confusion about what is now legal and what is not legal if, uh, if the amendment is passed is, is something that's perplexing to so many people. And so as a result of that, I think what the, the government has done is, is unfortunately set back the principles of ensuring that military style uh, ban on military style assault weapons and, and the freeze on handguns is actually put into place. Uh, it is difficult for people uh, who are law-abiding gun owners who use uh, guns for hunting to put food on the table to know whether or not their, their hunting rifle is legal or not. For law enforcement, that confusion of, uh, as well is compounded. How does law enforcement actually enforce laws uh, that nobody knows the answer to? And that Liberals unfortunately have not been able to answer some of the simple basic questions about the amendments. It, 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 it's really un unfortunate because th these are important initiatives. The bill itself is an important initiative and the, the government amendments uh, put through without vetting, without the due diligence that was required, have, have led to a lot of confusion around this bill. Ms. Bandai, what do you say to that, to, to the confusion? Because it's also been said that, that perhaps this is a missed opportunity because in the confusion, the goodwill of Canadians may actually be expended by, by the amendments that have been added here. Well, let's remind ourselves where that confusion comes from. It comes directly from the gun lobby, and it is the disinformation campaign that the gun lobby has organized that the Conservatives have picked up, which is sowing confusion in this country. I am certainly happy um, to organize technical briefings to ensure that everybody has a good understanding um, of what we are trying to do here, but this uh, should come as no surprise to anybody. It was in our 2019 platform uh, to ban assault uh, weapons in this country. And we have an order in council which listed a number of assault weapons. Manufacturers have since tried to play whack-a-mole with, with our list and, and, and have created um, other weapons with, with different names and makes and models in order to get around that list. And what we needed was a clear definition, which is the amendment that is before but, but the committee. Can, but can you guarantee to, to hunters in this country that the guns that, is, uh, that are being referenced in this amendment will not affect the guns that they have in their homes? Well, I think that we need to take a step back and, and look at the definition, understand what it means, and if hunters have questions, then I am certainly happy to answer them. I think it is important that Canadians have a good appreciation of what, um, of what is and isn't legal in this country, and part of the goal of the definition is to make that clear, rather than continually updating a list. What we have now is a clear definition that Canadians can understand and know in advance, and that is what is important, because I feel that from a criminal law perspective, we need to give that assurances to Canadians that they should know before purchasing a firearm whether or not it's legal. And military-style assault weapons that were designed to kill people, not ducks, are not 
they don't belong on our streets. We can see the damage that they cause. In. Let me jump in because I'm losing time here. Ms. Dancho, what do you say that? A clear definition is what we're being told. Well, I think it's just a bit misleading. The Liberal government, particularly the Minister of Public Safety and the Prime Minister, have now said for two and a half weeks, oh, there's no hunting rifles on this uh, on this amendment. The Conservatives are fear-mongering, has been their words. But just today, they've admitted, oh, well, you know, if there's any hunting rifles, we're going to remove those and we'll fix the amendment. So which one is it? Is it there are no hunting rifles or is, as they said today, that there are hunting rifles? So we do feel that there's been a lot of lying from the Liberal government looking to distract Canadians from the truth. Certainly there are legitimate and, again, ubiquitous hunting rifles rifles on there that have been used for many, many decades by Indigenous and non-Indigenous hunters safely. And we do feel that this actually, I'm going to pick up on something Charlie, uh, pardon me, uh, that my colleague from the NDP, Peter Julian, has said that's really important because there are so many Canadians that own these types of firearms for hunting uh, and for protecting their livestock on farms. It will criminalize those who own these, uh, if, if all of these are becoming prohibited, it will criminalize those Canadians who have them if they use them not knowing they're on the list. And as that has has been outlined today, it is a very unclear definition with hundreds and hundreds of pages of uh, commonly used firearms that are used for hunting and protecting livestock. So if we're seeing an Indigenous hunter who's pulled over by a police officer who has one of these in their in their back seat that they're going hunting for, they could face up to 10 years in prison. So why would the Liberal government bring forward something that they've called very, um, that has been said has been very confusing? Uh, they've been working on this for months, clearly. It's hundreds of pages of long, pages long. Quickly, so why would they do that unless they were trying to avoid transparency and accountability? So they have to remove this amendment and take it back to the drawing board and better yet, ne never bring it forward again, Michael. Uh, Peter Julian, uh, quickly running time, but how do you think the government needs to proceed here? Well, the government messed up, there's no doubt. I, I certainly agree that the Conservatives have spread some disinformation as well. That, that's something, they, they fundraise off uh, anything that's before the House, and I wish that they were more focused on being the official opposition. But the government did mess up, they've confused everything, and now uh, the NDP will step in, as we've done in the past, uh, as adults in the room, to, to try to make, uh, make some clarity, because the important thing, whether you're a law-abiding uh, uh, hunter that it puts food on the table for your family or in law enforcement, the law needs to be clear. And I think the original edition of the, the bill, Bill C-21, was clear enough. Uh, what the government's done at the 11th hour is messed it up and now we have to get back to some clarity mm -hmm. and transparency uh, and we need to be consulting with uh, with uh, Indigenous communities and other Canadians to make sure uh, that everyone is clear on where the, uh, where their the hunting rifle is found. Okay, Peter Julian, thank you for that. Also, our thanks to Rachel Bendayan and Raquel Dancho. To the three of you, thank you for the time. One of Ontario's largest children's hospitals has had to do something extraordinary. The Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario, or CHEO, turning to the Canadian Red Cross to ask for help. Now, CHEO has been working over capacity for weeks and asking for help from the Disaster Relief Agency will help the hospital deal with unprecedented volumes. Ontario's Premier was asked about it today. Take a listen to Doug Ford. i got to give Alex Munter a, a shout-out, the CEO over there. He's done an incredible job thinking outside the box. He's brought uh, pediatric experts from Orangen to help out. I want to thank the Red Cross for helping out on the administration side to free up our, our uh, frontline healthcare workers. 
So is this a new normal? With his reaction to the situation at Chio Hospitals in Ontario and right across the country, we're now joined by Dr. Alika LaFontaine. He's president of the Canadian Medical Association. Dr. LaFontaine, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. So I, I, I do want to begin with your reaction here to the Canadian Red Cross being called in to help meet the need at Chio right now. Is this acceptable? Is this what Canadian healthcare is meant to look like? So I think the first thing to remember is that this has actually happened before, but with adults instead of children. You know, a couple of years ago, we had multiple things happen with an adult critical and in hospital care that we just didn't expect. We shut down services. We asked for help from the military. You know, we did talk about using the Red Cross in different provinces when we were confronting different COVID waves that we uh, were faced with uh, over the past couple of years. So it's no surprise that this is now hitting our children in, in much the same way. I don't think that this needs to be the new normal, but this will be the new normal as long as we don't make foundational changes in the way that we provide healthcare. Okay, you you say foundational changes, and 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 part of that seems to be money, if I'm if I'm correct here, because the Ford government, I don't know if you know this, they're being criticized in Ontario for underfunding hospitals right now. It, it has spent eight hundred and fifty nine million dollars less than expected on healthcare so far this year. And I realize, as you say, this is extraordinary time. We have this triple threat of RSV, the flu, and COVID nineteen. But foundational aside, how much of this is about money and not enough of it being placed into the healthcare system? So I, I think it's about both sides of the equation, not only how much we're spending, but also where the money is going. You know, we've had a couple of decades that have brought us to this point where we've cut services and, and tried to function with as little capacity as possible in order to meet the service demand. So now that we have these spikes, now that we have these waves of respiratory illness affecting our children across the country, it is expected that we're now running into these problems. And so, you know, it's not only how much we need to spend, but also where we spend it. And so we definitely need increased money, but we need to spend it differently as well. Okay, talk to us about that, because, you know, I was going through the website of the CMA, and, and there's this talk about how the money, how it's allocated, how it's invested, does not actually meet how healthcare needs to be delivered now. So talk to us about these foundational changes that you would like to see, and how perhaps what we're dealing with is an outmoded, an outmoded way of thinking of healthcare. So I think what's what we're really seeing as Canadians in real time at hospitals that are confronting this wave of pediatric respiratory illness is that we're getting a breaking down of silos. You know, groups are getting together and they're talking in ways that they didn't before. You know, team-based care is really being operationalized by their CEO right now. You know, you're having Orange talk to the hospitals. Hospitals are talking with community care. They're also talking with experts within the hospital to make sure that things are guided in a way that really deal with the problems that parents are coming with when they bring in their children. You know, the, the same sort of team-based care is something that the CMA has advocated for years to implement, but it needs to be funded. We need to get a shift in our model away from, you know, these solo isolated practices that we have, you know, bringing back virtual care in Ontario and elsewhere, making sure that it's a part of the continuum of care uh, changing the way that people are licensed and privileged. That way we can go to places that need our help as fast as possible. You know, these are all part of the foundational changes that we're talking about that we really need to lean in right now in this crisis. Okay, if, if you don't mind, could you paint a, a bit more of a detailed picture? What do you mean by team-based healthcare? Because, you know, in many parts of this country, people can't even get a primary care doctor. Mm -hmm. So what happens right now is people are in silos. So when we talk team-based care, it's a patient going from team to team and being that link between them. I think what you're seeing evolve at CHEO and other places that are confronting these crises is a breaking down of those team walls. 
you know, having people speak behind the scenes more than just when an urgent case comes in that they need to confront in the moment. You know, there are different ways that we can make the experience seamless for patients going through. We should not have to wait for, you know, a family doctor to call into emergency trying to advocate for their patient. There's ways that we can share information. There's ways that we can meet day to day to make sure that we're rounding and utilizing resources appropriately. And, you know, in the midst of these crises and spikes in need, bringing in things like EMS and air transport and communities in order to get a get a track and an idea of where people are actually having the problems is really, really important. So I, I think CHEO is a good example of how team-based care is being implemented in real time. Mm -hmm. What role can Ottawa play? Because, you know, we are talking about CHEO here, but the, uh, as you know, hospitals right across the country are struggling right now to deal with uh, this now new need of RSV, the flu, and COVID-19 after years of dealing with COVID-19. And I, I wonder about Ottawa's role, because sorry to harp on the dollars, but the provinces will argue that Ottawa covers less than 25% of healthcare costs in this country. So once again, it's not just the amount that we spend, but also how we spend it. So how can we spend it differently? You know, we've talked for a long time about a national healthcare system. In reality, we have 13 siloed jurisdictions across provinces and territories. You know, we have a real opportunity right now to share data, you know, that really would have helped with the respiratory crises that we're, we're running into right now with, with our pediatric populations. We have the opportunity to share workforces you know, that's looking at registration of health professionals across the country, making sure that they're mobile, that they don't have to register again every time that they move across those jurisdictional lines, province to province, territory to territory, you know, making sure that we move towards that team-based care again, encouraging people through incentives and funding to practice together instead of by themselves. You know, all of these things lead to what I think at the end of the day is making sure that we solve the problems of the patients that come through the doors of the places that they access care. And that's really what I think more and more Canadians are expecting from us, not just for pediatric patients who are in the midst of this crisis, but also moving forward into what comes next for healthcare. Dr. Alika LaFontaine, thank you for this. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for having me. At the end of the day, it's not about jurisdiction. It's about the problems that exist at the ground level. And cities are very conscious of that. And I couldn't care less. We're doing things on homelessness, putting money into them with strapped municipal budgets, uh, because that's what has to happen, even though it's not our jurisdiction. So I just think that these are all solvable. Um, we'd like to have the same relationship with all of our provincial governments, some, pro some municipalities have them, that we have with the feds, where we can sit down and sort these problems out. That was Halifax Mayor Mike Savage speaking earlier today. Mr. Savage in Ottawa right now with the Federation of Canadian Municipalities. Now, as chair of the Big City Mayor's Caucus, he's also pushing Ottawa for more action and details on priorities like housing and infrastructure. And with that, as you can see, we're now reaching out to the mayor of Halifax himself. Hello, Mike Savage. Michael, how are you doing? I'm good, I'm good. I'm really glad that you're here. Uh, now, you are in Ottawa right now, taking part in the uh, FCM's annual advocacy days, and, and housing, it seems, is a huge priority for you. Uh, talk to us about the challenge and what you're hoping to hear from Ottawa while you're here. So housing is a big challenge, both in terms of housing supply writ large, but also particularly in terms of homelessness and people who have no place uh, to sleep at night. So it's, it's, I would say it's the issue that keeps mayors awake the most is this issue of housing. And we appreciate a lot of the initiatives of the, of the federal government, um, but the, the need is so significant. We want to know 
exactly what's going to be in the housing accelerator fund, which is a $4 billion plan announced by the federal government. Um, and we want to talk further about what other supports we can have for people, particularly those who are sleeping rough, who have no place to go. So these are also issues we need to have discussion with provincial governments about. The, the feds have been very accessible in terms of us being able to talk to them. We met with Minister Hussein the, uh, this morning. We met with Minister LeBlanc this morning. Um, and so those uh, are important discussions. And we're just looking for some details on uh, how do we help people that need housing. Okay, let's break that up, uh, beginning with the Housing Accelerator Fund, because as you said, this price tag of $4 billion announced in Budget 2022, a lot of money that's meant to bring about tens of thousands of housing units, but it does fall on cities, on uh, municipalities to take the ball and run with it. So what exactly do you need to see from Ottawa, hear from Ottawa, to, to turn those dollars into housing? Well, there's a number of initiatives that that slow housing. You know, it's not it's not uh, approvals from municipal government right now. It's it's other factors. It's it's the lack of supply. It is the high cost of borrowing, which impacts developments. In our city of Halifax, we have tens of thousands of units that are approved for development, and cities have to be responsible for their part of the bargain. We have to be prepared to do everything we can to uh, assist the housing crisis in Canada. So the Accelerator Fund could help us do more things digitally. This could be support directly to municipalities that could take us from some manual processes to digital processes to speed up housing. It could be to hire more planners to get more work done uh, because we all have a role to play uh, in this uh, situation now. And, and, and most Canadians, particularly those who don't have a house to live in or don't have a decent rental unit to live in, they don't really care whose jurisdiction it is. They just know they need a place to sleep. And we all have to put our shoulder to the wheel and, and uh, do everything we can to provide housing for Canadians. Mm -hmm. And then you also mentioned for those who are chronically homeless, which is a separate issue than the housing accelerators, is my understanding. Very much so. There's a program the feds bought in a few years ago called the Rapid Housing Initiative, which goes directly to municipalities who can then decide how do we get quickly, how do we quickly get support for people who need it. So in Halifax, as an example, Michael, um, we've been able to create more than 130 units for people who need housing quickly. So we work with our provincial government who provide the wraparound support. We work for our not-for-profit sector. There will be a, a, a former motel opening up in the next few couple of weeks on the Dartmouth side of the harbour in Halifax, which will house, I think, 60-some people who have a lot of needs. And that can only happen with all orders of government. So it was the federal rapid housing initiative. It came to the municipal government. The municipal government identified being a partner in this hotel. And then it was the provincial government. It was the service providers. In this case, it's the Affordable Housing Association and the North End Community Health Center doing amazing work and providing support and critically providing the wraparound services that people need to be uh, successful and to have a decent life um, once we get them into a properly housed circumstance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, you also talked about infrastructure uh, in your meetings today, uh, uh, greening Canadian cities uh, being one example of it and the critical role that the next budget will actually play in that. So what do you mean uh, by that statement that the next budget will be important? Well, it's very important. So we, we recently, the feds announced their national adaptation strategy, which we've been waiting for for some time, um, which has been really important. Uh, and $530 million off the 1.6 billion that the feds have committed 
in that program will go directly to the Federation of Canadian Municipalities Green Municipal Fund, which can be used for a variety of projects. Halifax has used it for years, for example, um, in Solar City, which is a program that lets people put solar panels on their roof and pay for it over time in their property tax bill. So, but we need more. So. FCM had called for $2 billion into a fund that's called the Disaster Mitigation and Adaptation Fund. We got almost half a million uh, in that. We need, we think, a billion dollars a year. So it was a good start. I think even the government has said there's more coming in the next budgets. But, you know, I'm the mayor of Halifax. We had Hurricane Fiona rip through Atlantic Canada this year. These are not normal weather events, or they weren't. Unfortunately, they're becoming normal now with climate change. And so all cities of all sizes, all municipalities of all sizes in Canada need some support as we mitigate against and adapt to the changing circumstances of weather. And so these are really important programs from the federal government, and we're encouraging them to do more. I have less than a minute here, Mayor Savage, but but I do wonder because the the, the cities, the municipalities are, are coming asking for more clarity, for more money amongst a, a number of different lobby groups that look for that type of money. So, and I don't mean to be rude by asking this question, but if Ottawa coughs up the cash, what do municipalities bring to the table? Well, municipalities bring to the table the ability to get stuff done. You know, um, we've shown what we can do. Um, when when the support is provided um, and we'll be a partner so in Halifax again to use Halifax as an example we have a very ambitious climate plan called called Halifax um, and we're we're collecting property tax dedicated to climate so we're doing our part but as you will have heard from mayors in the past cities are responsible for 60 percent of the infrastructure we only collect 10 percent of the taxes we need to make sure that all of our infrastructure particularly critical infrastructure bridges and roads and the buildings that we're building are built for the future that they are sustainable um, and if we don't do that then we're going to continue being behind the eight ball when it comes to severe weather events so cities will be an effective partner as we always have been uh, in getting stuff done on the ground level Mayor Mike Savage, really appreciate the time. Thank you for that. Thank you, Michael. And that is our program for tonight. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for joining. I'm Michael Serapio. We will see you again tomorrow.